All of these challenges are interdisciplinary and the solutions though have to be intergenerational. Young people sort of figured out the math. You're going to need many ways to do this. And so I think it's smarter to already engage the next generation or multiple generations in some of these approaches to the transition so that we don't go one step forward, two step back and, or have the you know, politics catch us blind, you know, blindside us. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Commodities in Asia on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Lee Howell, Executive Director at the Villars Institute. We'll be discussing the shifting tides in international affairs and the new geopolitical realities that are being created by the energy transition and Asia's place in it. Hello, Lee. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. Well, really glad to have you here today. I've been looking forward to this conversation because you've been at the center of the conversations shaping the course of international collaboration for more than a decade, producing the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos and the annual Summer Davos meeting in China, among others. And I've been looking forward to discussing with you these shifting tides in international affairs and geopolitical realities that are being created by the energy transition and Asia's place in it. You know, maybe we can start with an observation or speculation on my part, which is that it seems we're seeing a shift from a world where international trade's been arranged around World Trade Organization or WTO principles to one where we're seeing the reemergence of industrial policy. We're seeing policies like those in the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States and to a lesser extent the CBAM in Europe that are picking winners and losers in a way reminiscent, to me at least, of the industrial policy of China and Japan that the US and Europe long opposed. Maybe it's not as simple and tidy as all that, but I was curious for your opinion on, do you see these climate change and energy transition policies shifting the consensus around how international trade should be conducted in the world? It's a great question, Dave, and a great observation, because I think we're, we are at an inflection point. Most of it, of course, is around the narrative. I think The Economist had an article recently called, you know, the homeland economics of the homeland economy. And, um, you know, of course, they're, they're arguing their point and what they see in the rise of industrial policy. But here, you know, I'm based in Geneva and down the road is the World Trade Organization. In the last month uh, at my institute in Villar, we had 100 trade negotiators and experts come and talk about this very issue. And in it, I think, you know, I observed two things. Um, one, a recognition that you know, the WTO, when it was created through the Marrakesh Agreement in 1994, actually explicitly linked trade to sustainable development. But two, the narrative around sustainable development has changed, as you pointed out. It is not just about the sustainable development goals. We have concerns around uh, everything from, of course, net zero climate change, but even nature loss in terms of, in, in, you know, in ways of thinking about biodiversity, right, aligned with climate goals. So I do think we're at a point where trade, experts in particular, also feel that they are 
struggling to find relevance, right, in today's sort of political debates. Like, where do they sit? And so that's not a bad time, though, because I think that means people are open to try to rejuvenate the system. And I think the energy transition and, you know, goals linked to climate and to sustainable development are things that I think the the trade community, now I'm talking more about, I'm not talking about the political people, but at least the, the experts and the negotiators think they get it that they have to become part of that and part of the solution, not part of the problem when it comes to um, where we want to go with the global economy in terms of right, reducing carbon emissions and, and again, preventing uh, biodiversity loss, et cetera. So I think they're up for that. The problem is that, you know, all politics is local and, and, and the local narratives, right, change. I do think, though, there are you know, national politics in some quarters are finding a way to still address climate and in a way with probably big carrots, like the, you just mentioned the IRA, you know, in the United States. Maybe some parts of the world jurisdictions are favoring a bit more of the big stick. You know, recently we had, of course, the, you know, in the EU, at least, since it's not part of the EU, but in, in the region, the discussion about, right, what the double materiality piece about companies having to really list much more uh, in terms of what their impact is on the environment. So, yeah, I think it's still open. I wouldn't call it either way yet. I do think that there are competing narratives. And again, I'll go back to the economists talking about it's all about, you know, the homeland now. Um, you're going to see uh, others speak about it's all about the energy transition and how do we facilitate and enable that. And others will say, well, this is all got to, you know, preserve and protect the planet. So how's that going to work out? How are we going to have prosperity within planetary boundaries? They're all competing, but that's at the multilateral level, I think, in some ways, because I think nationally, each each country is just doing its thing. And and some of it is surprising, like what happened in the U.S., as you described. Recently, uh, closer to where I am in the U.K., people are a bit more than disappointed, I think, with the direction of the U.K. government when it comes to uh, their climate policies and what's happening in energy. So, yeah, I, I do think it's too early to call. And um, we'll see more people sort of uh, really, you know, trying to capture the hearts and minds of those who make the decisions when it comes to trade. And when it comes to this question of countries increasingly going their own way, doing their own thing, following their own priorities, one thing it brings to mind is, of course, in the energy transition, there's going to be new industries. Industries will rise, industries will fall. We hear so much conversation around hydrogen, liquefied natural gas, coal. Where do we need more of? What do we need less of? And you know, to what extent do you see governments around the world getting engaged in the business of trying to pick the winners and losers and making big bets on certain industries? Well, I think the biggest bets so far have been in electrification, particularly the you know the uh, the notion that battery technology is going to really a going to be is critical right in terms of the the future of mobility and b it's also critical for the future of renewables in terms of right the storage capacity and in that you already have of course uh, there's one big dominant player in China of course and it's able to you know produce and and manufacture these batteries at you know very very competitive rates right and people worrying about them sort of flooding the market particularly in Europe. U.S., obviously, with um, IRA and other initiatives, is, is trying to build that capacity and really trying to friendshore everything. And also, of course, to the best of its ability, um, you know, revisit um, its capacity to, to, to mine and harvest lithium, right? But in Europe, it's tough because Europe, there's some stock of lithium discovered in Sweden. But recently, there was a great article about they know where there is deposits of lithium in Portugal, but it's really on a very, you know, it's in a rural area where the community is really against it. They don't want to see that strip mining come in. So yeah, it's where 
I, I think there's a, sort of like um, three perspectives where Chinese said, look, we've, we had the foresight. Why are you so you know, against us helping you decarbonize and, and you know, throwing up barriers to our um, manufacturing of batter, export of batteries for your vehicles in the U.S. or directly to Europeans? Why are you holding us up from exporting uh, low-cost electric vehicles? Right. That's their view. And then, but then um, that's, that's kind of a, it's kind of a Brussels, Beijing, Washington debate, right? Because there's other countries on the sidelines that are also trying, still not clear. If you're Japan and Korea, you make big bets on hydrogen, right? Uh, I mean, you're still in the battery space, clearly, uh, you know, the, their, their big players, Panasonic, LGs, you know, and and the like. But um, yeah, it's really the big three right now, sort of, pulling at this thing. And I, so I think at the end right now that what's captured most people's attention is the, the narrative around um, electrification and EVs and, and correspondingly batteries and the re- run for the, the resources behind those batteries. And it's not just, of course, lithium, cobalt, and, you know, other precious metals and also those rare earth metals that are in China, right? So yeah, that's the, I think that's where the, the thing is going to take us is really quickly into kind of a scrum around, okay, what are we going to do here when it comes to this electrification of everyone's economy. And the nature of this scrum is really interesting. I love that you brought up the the term friendshoring, right? Because we went from a, a long period of offshoring where it's China's going to be the manufacturer for the world. And now with this list of what technologies are considered critical, what are necessary to feel secure as a nation, it's growing. And suddenly offshoring your technology to be manufactured in China doesn't necessarily seem like the things that politicians in the United States and Brussels, you know, in Washington and Brussels want to do. And I'm curious because we've seen governments becoming more protective of their own technology and more wary of others. You know, you've seen that with Huawei and the US restrictions on semiconductor sales to China. And I'm curious, do you see this mainly as like a US China shift or a broader shift in how countries are? approaching technology yeah I think it's 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 broader and um, it is obviously very difficult if you're Japan or in the Netherlands or anyone else who's in that in that space where you're talking particularly about a certain class of processors that are particularly let's say very important initially in gaming and, and Bitcoin mining and the such but now of course in AI yeah I think it gets quite complicated because the reality is sort of we're going back to the future because the, a lot of this is around dual use, the narrative of dual use, right? Which I think many listeners may be too young to remember, but that was a, a phrase that uh, people lived during the Cold War and scientists and engineering firms, you know, always were sort of wary of being having whatever they're producing or discovering, researching to be considered dual use because once you have that, you're, you're, you are lack, locked into the sort of military security apparatus of your country and it's very hard to operate in that kind of an envi- restrictive environment. And also the, the worst thing maybe is the chilling effect it would just have on fundamental research because there's still a lot of that happening, but it does happen. It's even more complicated because some of some, you know, some of the best scientists, if you take particle physics, you know, they're Russian, right? And it's hard for Russians to go anywhere and work on these things. And then if if not, they're just gonna go, you know, it's the Chinese and the Russians then. Is that is that where we want all sort of an access there when it comes to, you know, basic research? And then it's sort of the US and Europe and the rest of the world kind of a thing. That's really net, net not going to be good because you know obviously we need the best minds to work on these important interdisciplinary problems. But um, yeah, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I think people are already, in a way, it has a chilling effect. You know, 
Um, there's no rule. There's no really sort of blatant protectionist sort of rules. I mean, there are some. I mean, clearly with with some of the the new acts in terms of the how they've structured the incentives around where you produce and where you don't produce. But yeah, I think people are factoring that. And that said, I also think people are, are smart enough. Also, we're hearing stories about in the Middle East and others that developing their own chips. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things happening, right? Because it's it is you know, data and, and the processing power are sort of the real things, you know, the new fossil fuels that will drive the, you know, replace the fossil fuels that are driving, you know, this old economy of the third or fourth industrial revolution. And the next one will be all about the data and processing power, right? So that's where I think things are headed. And it'll be tricky. It'll be tricky, particularly for the smaller countries that are in sort of in between, right? Important in the value chain, but not the value chain, if you know what I mean. So they're going to be sort of squeezed on on very small things. And, and I can imagine there's a lot of different small, medium-sized manufacturers that don't really have the capacity or the, or the, the legal departments to navigate all of this stuff. You know, that's going to be also a big burden on, on those firms. Yeah. And this burden, you know, on the one hand, talking about going from kind of a WTO world to more of a, you know, industrial policy world sounds very academic, but it has real implications, right? It's about how difficult is it to transact across borders? The burden put on smaller companies feels like to some extent we have to kind of go back and dust off a lot of the conversations from you know, 15, 20 years ago and understand those terms. When you brought up dual use, you know, it made me think we had Robert Friedland on the podcast about a month or two ago, and he was bringing up how there's a lot of technology that's been developed on the military side that has very good applications on the civilian side for mining and helping us extract the resources we need. And of course, now there's a lot of technology that's being developed on the civilian side that could fall under a military use. So it, it starts to get caught under that umbrella. And I'm curious, like, do we think that obviously throughout history, there's been a lot of conflicts, military conflicts that have arisen over disputes over resources and energy? Is there, you know, how should we be thinking about the military aspect of this changing, you know, international order that we seem to be going through? Well, I think it's 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 important because obviously our headlines are full of of really um, tragic and alarming developments, right? In Gaza, in the border of Israel, or it could be, you know, Ukraine, Russia, but there are other places that are less known in parts of Africa and such. So we're aware that these these are not the best of times when it comes to sort of Scaring stability, but I would think when it comes to that that political military layer of analysis on this, I think you have to look at other domains because traditionally it has always been about the energy, right? It's been sea lanes, access to the energy, and such. I'll take for example, you mentioned dual use technologies that sort of came out of the military and that ended up having amazing applications in, in our sort of daily lives. And of course, the most ones that we're all familiar with is you know global positioning systems GPS and uh, and what happened there, of course, is that other European developed its own platform, the Chinese. But what people aren't appreciating is that if you were to count the number of satellites in the sky today, you know, most of them are a privately owned satellites by, you know, factor, you know, pretty large factor, right? I think there's less than a thousand that are really owned by governments and, and, and most of that is military, but there's over... 3,000, nearly 5,000 is growing every day of private sector, small sort of satellites of all shapes and sizes. And of course, the most famous example of this is Starlink, right? And then the, the, the revelation and the uh, Walter Isaacson book about the discussion around whether to allow access to those uh, GPS coordinates, for, you know, allow the Ukrainians to have access to it at a particular point in time. 
um, right, in the conflict, right, and kind of the narrative that if they had done so, it would escalate things, and therefore the decision wasn't with any government or anybody you know on the field. It was really a private individual deciding whether to allow the access to that to the GPS system, right, the satellite system. So. Yeah, we're in a different world. That wasn't that wouldn't have been in part of the that you know the, the domain of space has always been very important. I mean, it goes back to Sputnik, and if we could go back, you know, the Cold War kind of timeline. But today, yeah, it's um, you know we see it all the time that how important you know having communications, um, being able to see things. Geospatial technology, by the way, is also amazing today because of what it can do potentially to save the planet. I mean, how else are we going to measure, measure if people are really capping methane flares from their oil rigs, right? How are we going to actually met, measure um, in real time, or as accurately as possible, deforestation in very critical parts, biomes of the world? So the flip side of that is also uh, very important for planetary health, but at the same time, uh, it can be used, obviously, in ways that uh, you know, we wouldn't, we prefer not to see it being used, right, in terms of military advantage in, in very tense conflicts. And when you look at, you mentioned we already have a, a few real wars occurring, actual conflicts, you know, in Ukraine with Russia, in Gaza and Israel. Are there other conflicts that we should be worried about potentially arising as, you know, you mentioned, you know, traditionally conflict over sea lanes or just as we're changing the the nature of where we're getting resources and the resources and the technologies? Are there certain flashpoints that you think we need to be aware of? I do. I, I mean, I think, let, let go back to step, you know, we talked about the health of the planet. And one of the narratives, of course, is that, you know, if we if we get past 1.5 and we're on the track for 1.8 degrees warming, nearly two, then, you know, the massive migration that, that climate change will produce, right, obviously will exacerbate tensions in various communities. And and, uh, and I think that's, I think that's still a valid thesis. And, you know, it's not a direct thing. It's, it's a bit indirect, but I, I could see, you know, because already politically, people are fleeing countries and, and, and at large scale and disturbing the heck out of politics in Europe and the politics in the United States, right? And it's really, we're not even really tying that directly to, you know, there's other things involved that are obviously uh, concerning, you know, in Latin America, the government's there, but also, you know, just the sort of crime and the lack of opportunities. But also, you know, you have people in Europe coming across from Afghanistan still, still from, from Syria and other places, right? Uh, hoping for a better life. So it's, that's already happening. I can imagine if you sort of, you know, literally ratchet up another level with forced migration because it's it, you just simply cannot stay in your community because of absolute lack of water or any sort of, sort of you know, we can't grow crops or, or something or the heat, just generally just the heat and humidity has got to a point where you, it's not. Now, that that's that's plausible. That's that's very more than probable. I don't want to call it probable, but we're in that direction. It's probable, right? Then, you know, that's there. But the one I think you're talking about is really... All of these things, you know, what, what bothers us in this is that this is more like, you know, historians still argue, as you know, to this day about what really triggered and caused the First World War. And it's kind of clear in their minds about the Second World War. But, you know, if there's a third one, would we really know where the flashpoints would be? Would it be, as some would say, you know, some sort of mistake that happened in the South China Sea, but it wasn't, it, you know, but it involved the Filipino Navy and the Chinese Navy. And all of a sudden, because of the security arrangements, the U.S. has to step in and sort of back up Philippines. People aren't aware that there's there's these institutional relationships that still are around, right? And the one I just mentioned is the U.S. and the Philippines. We're pretty familiar with NATO and 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 in Europe, and people are familiar with the U.S. and and South Korea and the U.S. and Japan. 
but you know, all of these things are flashpoints. And I think that's, that's the, the trouble. And also you have sort of very odd actors coming together, right? This is the week, as you all know, the Belt and Road Forum, and you had President Putin uh, arrive in China, which is very rare. But only a month ago, it was very rare to have the you know head of North Korea, Kim Jong Un, going to Moscow. I mean, this is these are these are very different, unexpected travel logs. <laughs> it is, and you're making me think. You know, of uh, years ago, there was Tom Friedman's book, "The World Is Flat," and it feels like the world is. I'm not sure what it's becoming, but it seems to be becoming less flat. And I was hoping you might be able to help us understand Asia's role in all of this, because I think it is much bigger than China's role and countries throughout Asia have different identities and cultures as well as different political and economic realities. So I was wondering, you know, how do you think about the role that the countries in Asia will play in how the world's organized going forward? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's more than interesting, right? Because because just the, the number of people and if we were to put define Asia as is really from Pakistan to Japan, then we're talking, you know, this is just three, you know, nearly 4 billion people almost, right? And um, I think, but that said, as you mentioned, the diversity and the historical biases that that actually shape a lot of the decisions even today are there. They're not gone. I guess what I would think about is, is the following. There was the thesis, as you know, that, you know, the growth of China would be good for the region. Everybody would supply and would benefit from the Chinese consumer and uh, tourism, and that was very clear. There's been a new sort of reality, though. Some people have been very critical, for example, that the financing capital that went into the Belt Road Initiative. And so that's always, you know, there's always going to be sort of people sort of seeing the upside or downside of this. But I do think what we hadn't contemplated in all of this was a interesting security discussions. Of my, you know, I would just say, for example, the notion that, you know, India in this, this new region called the Indo-Pacific, right? Because it's a, in a way... The Asia Pacific of, of the traditional Western powers, uh, sort of inviting and including India as a player, as a partner in this Indo Pacific, and the big maritime forces of the U.S. and Japan and Australia, right, and, and now with India, that's different. That's new. That's that's in the that's only recently in the, you know our vernacular. I wouldn't say you know it's not something we were talking about twenty years ago. The Taiwan Straits, of course, still very very important and and very key. What we're more concerned about is that in this last several years, the Chinese capabilities in terms of they're able to you know to have aircraft launched from their own carrier groups that's a big difference it's not just you know and the development of mischief reef and all that's been there but now really they are not in many ways um, people are concerned because they have the capabilities they've invested quite a bit in the next generation of of military aviation platforms and things so I think that's also significant and you also had a turn around in terms of what the Japanese and even the Koreans are, are, are capable of sort of working and thinking together because North Korea is still around, right? So yeah, I, I, I think that part of the world has always been a place where at times there's great, great positive narrative about a you know, trans-Pacific trading area and indeed um, thinking about a great value chain you know, that would sort of raise, lift the boats across the region and people out of absolute poverty. And that's still true, but it's always been you know, there's always been also this sort of underlying fragility when it comes to the political military arrangements in the region. And so that's why it's, it's all in a period of transition. And I think, you know, it's interesting how the U.S.'s discussion with Vietnam 20 years ago was about more about just opening their markets at that time. And now it's has a sort of different dimension to it when it comes to collaborating because they have very important seaports, right? 
and assets for for the U.S. Navy. So it's just that's kinds of you know that's just different conversations. And what I worry the most, Dave, is that the appreciate you know we're losing. We've, we're pretty much at the point where most people have lived through the horrors of the in that region, the Korean War or even the Vietnam War, but certainly the World Second World War. They're passing on, and no, you know, and we're and that's important because there you know there's always a kind of reminder of what's really at stake when you have people with their sort of lived experience tell you that it's not worth it. When those people disappear, you might think, oh, it might be worth, you know, this might be worth the gambit, right? And that's dangerous. Absolutely. I'm curious because you've been involved in these conversations for so many decades. And I think a lot of the rest of us who aren't as deeply connected, we kind of adopt the shorthands, you know, of offshoring, friendshoring. And I guess what, what I'm curious about is when you look within the region of Asia, what do you see as some of the big things that the various countries want their place in the world to be. Now, there was a period where it was using the US and European consumer being the manufacturer for those markets. And that was a way to grow and develop. And then it was, you know, the, as you said, the Chinese consumer that everyone wanted to get access to. And would you give up technology to help get access to such a, a large market? How do you see some of these different countries seeing their role? Like, what's their aspiration at this point in terms of their own development and place in the world? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think those countries, some of them, of course, and, and what's really fundamentally changed, I think, are two points. One, one, if I were in Asia to sort of really think through this, one is the big part of the developed market, that world is getting older, right? It's, it's actually flipping demographically. And, and we've never really experienced what's happening in Italy and Japan. We don't know what that's going to do. So how can you really bet on them, you know, those countries, the West buying more of whatever X and Y you make? And secondly, there tend to be countries that are not inviting your sort of the population to come and the younger population to come to, you know, their countries and take on the jobs, right? We're not seeing that labor mobility, maybe like a hundred years ago, where even Japanese Immigrants would leave and work in Sao Paulo, Brazil, or show up in Hawaii on the shores of Hawaii. We're not seeing that, right? That's kind of migration, migratory moves. So I think that's something you have to reflect on that, okay, you know, I, I guess what's consistent is the change. And this time, though, something we've never seen, which is the demographic one. The other one we've never seen or we're only aware of now, which is, you know, these countries, they have to think about their place in the world in what some people call the Anthropocene, right? Where we know that human you know, humans are changing literally, you know, the geology and sort of the structure to earth, right? Particularly the climate. So I feel that in some instances, there are going to be some countries that maybe realize that uh, the big more bit like Brazil, they have actually some of the key biomes of the world. And actually, they are going to be very important to preserve and to protect. And people can recognize that. And hopefully, they'll be rewarded for that for their forbearance and, right? And sort of stopping sort of the logging when it comes to to palm oil and things like that and maybe that will happen i hope it does happen the other side of it is you know there's a little bit of like well why should we change because if that's the model what are why are we denying it now what comes in between that is the possibility of leapfrog maybe that will be the thing that i mean most of these countries are already active only on mobile phones i mean can't really find anybody and they're paying buying stuff you know sharing things and such so Maybe there's a possibility there to be, but I think fundamentally what's going to happen is they're all going to have to go through a period of low carbon development. So how does that work? Back to the energy transition, right? It's not, it's inevitable. I mean, they may come later, but that's what they have to work towards. And so I think those, you know, that'd be something to watch 
But the reality is that, you know, in Asia, historically, you know, the whole absolute poverty narrative has been really about China and India because the numbers. Um, we sort of forgot about the number of people in Cambodia, uh, you know, or even more, more Indonesia um, that we, you know, still uh, we need to lift out of poverty. And so we also have to be careful, too, that that's the part of the world, along with parts of Africa as well, Latin America, where, you know, we talk about energy transition, but there's fundamentally about you know, over a billion people who have no access. So what are they going to have access to? In terms of their energy needs, so yeah, I, I I do think it's 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 a mixed bag. It's not sort of that post-colonial and then being the beneficiary of of a sort of the Cold War between the Soviet sphere and the American sphere, and and sort of you know playing that and being non-aligned and then sort of sort of you know and then over time picking out what areas that you want to be part of someone's sort of extended global value chain. I you know I think it's a different game because there's just different parameters now that you have. To, to deal with. And, but the biggest one, I think, for in Asia is still a relationship with China, right? In a relationship with the U.S. Like, how does that work? I mean, in a perfect, you know, for any Asian, they'd say, look, if the Chinese and Americans get along, good for everybody, good for business, good for everything, right? And so it's been, I remember there's a, there's a famous Senate um, ambassador to Japan, former majority leader of the Senate named Mike Mansfield. You know, in the 1970s, he would say his quote was for those who were like Japan watchers, like me, you know, the U.S. and Japan is the most important bilateral relationship in the world, bar none. You know, nobody would think that's the case today, but that moment in time, it was a really big deal in the mm-hmm. 70s, right? In the 80s. So today, you know, where is that big bilateral? You know, is it, is it Russia, China, as the media sort of wants us to think? Is that's probably the one? Is in some ways, you know, if there is a way of, of a reconciliation between China and the U.S., could that be something? Um, in a, and we're still searching for what's that new. I, I don't think there's a roadmap, but we're still looking for where the compass points are. Right. Well, and you've also started something new for yourself as well. So this could be a good time to talk about that. You've recently taken on a new role as the executive director of the Villars Institute, which is aiming to accelerate the transition to net zero and improve the health of the planet. And I wanted to ask you, you know, why this new chapter for you? Because I'm curious how much is driven by your own views of how the nature of the challenges that the world faces and the approaches we need to take have changed? It's something that um, I look at primarily as from a perspective of as a parent. I have two boys, and they're 12 and 14. And um, it sort of hit me one day is that we talk about all of these goals that we want to achieve for the benefit of the planet. And obviously, the first and foremost is sustainable development goals in 2030, which I don't think we're going to get to, but there's the bigger, more existential planetary goal of, you know, obviously keeping and controlling emissions by 2050 and getting to net zero emissions globally, which is right. And I reflected on that. I said, well, first principles, you know, um, let's assume we have enlightened leaders that got us to that goal in 2015. We're really celebrating, but where are they today? And I realized they're, they're today, they're, you know, it's, they're this, there's a young generation, they're in high school, maybe going into university right now. They're the ones that, um, what do they, where, where are they right now? Well, they're in a place of probably more echo anxiety and then echo ambition. And we spoke about this and what's missing is the sense of agency, right? And that's what led me to say, well, you know, what could we do as an institute? And two things we said, look, one is to be honest about the nature of the challenge. And all of these challenges are interdisciplinary and the solutions though have to be intergenerational. And that's, you know, that's hard to get people's mind around because most things we don't, when we approach it are very, very often, you know, very, it's very rare. Even I'm sitting here today at the University of Geneva where my office is and a professor, you know, you don't see, you know, you're not really rewarded and encouraged to do interdisciplinary work per se, but there are, you know, well, increasingly these problems are interdisciplinary and we know that. 
Secondly, even when you address them, you know, the, we speak about the future, but it's really not intergenerational because in a way, there are a lot of things that we've done to only discover the next generation absolutely does not believe the, the approach that we've put into place. You know, the classic one in the energy transition that I tell people all the time is, look what happened in Germany in, in nuclear energy today. I mean, they built these power plants and there was a period when people protested them. And then there was, you know, the really political and, and, and you know, just a crass political decision by Chancellor Merkel to, to shut them down after the Fukushima tragedy in you know, 2011 and sort of double down even on natural gas pipelines to Russia, even after the Crimean, you know, invasion of Crimea by the Russians in 2014. And now what are we looking at? We're stuck at Germany burning more coal. Right. That's where you ended up. And young people saying, what's going on with that? Why aren't we doing, you know, back to nuclear power? And if you it's funny, it's trending on social media as young people sort of figured out the math. You're going to need many ways to do this. And so I think it's smarter to already engage the next generation or multiple generations in some of these approaches to the transition so that we don't go one step forward, two step back and, and, and or have the you know, politics catch us blind, you know, blindside us. So that's the, that's the thing I would, that's what we're focused on. So the idea is at the Institute is, okay, number one, let's show everybody, explain how the system works. Once you have the system works, you can at least have some sense of how you might approach it and agency Two, appreciate that you can't just deal with climate. It's also biodiversity and water. And, and, and at the end of the day, um, we're dealing with, you know, the planet and the, there's some clear systems that we have to address and can't do without. And lastly, whatever we do, you know, we need to consider that this solution will only work if we got by and not just across the various stakeholders of today, but we also have the you know, encouragement and engagement of the next generation, because that's what it's going to take, right? Because it's not, it's we're, we're 2023 and 2050. That's, that's a couple of generations, in my opinion, to get there, right? Yeah, and when you noted that uh, we often take steps that we think will be for the benefit of the next generation only to discover that they did not want us to do that, that's Spoken as a true parent, I think. <laughs> I kind of came to that too. It's funny, Dave, because um, there's scientists, you know, it's, one of my mentors was talking once about these you know, National Academy of Science and, and Engineering in the U.S. often do lists of great, you know, engineering feats of one century. And then, you know, next year they talk about the big challenges. And often you can draw a connection that some of the greatest things like, the, you know, the, the, the discovering use of plastics, which people forget, I mean, it's, it is important and you think about what's happened in, in, in so many industries, including the medical industry. But then we have this whole narrative about, you know, plastic garbage patch in the ocean and ingesting microplastics. Take civil aviation, uh, great. But now today, it's still the really hard part of the, of, of the transportation sector to reduce emissions, right? They're really difficult. So, um, you know, take a technology, you know, often we're just going to find it. And I guess that's partly, that's also what's, what's concerning people around the debates around um for example, you know, artificial intelligence and, and the like, but there's something to that, right? And I guess the key for us is how do we uh, exercise an approach that it's not about foresight, it's about being a trustee for the future. So really sort of measure twice, cut once kind of approach to, to some of these things. And I've realized in talking with you today, you know, th there seems to be a thread throughout your career of this focus on fostering collaboration. You know, and that continues with your work at the Villars Institute now, you know, collaboration between nations, collaboration between generations, collaboration between academic disciplines and approaches to working on problems. So I was hoping maybe as we wrap up today, you could share with us, you know, maybe your perspective, some lessons on what can we be doing to try to approach these big global challenges in a more collaborative way, a more peaceful way, given your own experience? Yeah, I think one thing I've learned is the people that are 
good at this and I'm not claiming to be because I'm, I'm new and I'm trying to study and understand this though, are people who are smart, but if where they're exceptional is not necessarily in, in terms of measuring their IQ, but it's their EQ, right? Because what we realized in terms of systemic change to accelerate it, you have to work at a human scale. It's about trust and coordinating and basically not having actual authority to do things. So you have to convince others to go along. You recognize that what you're dealing with is really getting building narratives where people feel that they have agency to sort of complete the story, right? Narratives are, are open-ended and, and they're sort of inviting the stakeholders to come along and really shape that future. Those are all skills in a way that you know, traditional management training and others, we didn't really, it, it never really um, recognized or emphasized, right? I mean, it's been always about control and stability of a process and sort of in-depth knowledge about the subject matter, the technical matter. But in reality, these are all complex issues because um, we're learning from other disciplines like behavioral science that we're complex. We're not rational. And, you know, look, what's I can point, you know, anybody can point to, you know, we can go back. I won't sort of, I won't get into the op-ed space, but like what's happening in the United States in terms of some of the politics and sapping in the house is, doesn't seem rational or some of the reactions to some of the policies in the past related to public health and you know vaccines doesn't seem rational but you know we can't wish that away that's the nature but we that means we need people to sort of who understand people who can bring people around different views but i think the key in collaboration that i've observed is articulating what your common values are you may not have common approaches but we can i think agree that there's only one planet and we all have to do our best to sort of operate and prosper within what scientists have identified of these nine planetary boundaries. If we can agree on that, then, and we have, by the way, because that's how we addressed the issue of the ozone layers depletion in the 1980s, when every country in the world signed the Montreal Protocol, every country that existed at the time did, and we've managed to heal and repair that you know, part of the atmosphere. So it's doable. Of course it is, but at the same time, it, um, it makes us have to kind of reconsider our own approaches to, to leadership and also our willingness to also exercise followership and say, look, maybe in this one I'm, I'm co-pilot or maybe I'm in the backseat because you, that's the only way to get things you know, moving, right? Thanks again to Lee Howell, Executive Director at the Villars Institute. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue our series, Commodities in Asia, with Hei Yang, founder and CEO of LNG Easy. We'll be discussing the role of LNG in Asia and how it differs from the role of natural gas in the U.S. and Europe. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability. ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. Facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. 
please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abex Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.